Amen. Well, church, if you want to take your Bibles with me and open up to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. If you're new to the Bible, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all giving an account of Jesus, his person, his teachings, uh, and his call to himself. Uh, And so we're looking at the Gospel of John together as a church in chapter 3. Before we turn to God's Word, let me just ask God to help us as we jump into his word together. Let's pray together. Father, we simply give you thanks for your word and ask that your Holy Spirit would now turn on the lights in our hearts, illumine our understanding, that we might see you as you reveal yourself, that we might respond to you as you call us to. And Lord, we pray now that as we look at your word, that we would receive it as your truth. Your word is truth sanctify us by your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we, uh, our family had some bad news this past Wednesday morning. After years of service, our family's beloved toaster went kaput. So I went online and I googled toaster looking for a, a replacement and When I did that, I had no idea the thousands, and I'm not exaggerating, the thousands of choices that are available for a machine whose sole job is to warm up a piece of bread. And with never-ending variety and never-ending choices, toaster manufacturers are left with this question, how do we get noticed? You might not know this, but some businesses will actually pay Google to put their business on the top of your uh, search engine so that it looks like their product is the best choice. Why do they do that? Well, because in retail, there's a simple kind of idea that the more that people notice you and your product, the more sales you'll have. The more that you get noticed, the more value your product, your business appears to have. But toaster manufacturers are not the only ones asking how to get noticed. People are, too. If we could, have, if we could hire Google to put our names at the top of the list, we would. You see, our world operates with a similar value system to that which we see in the marketplace today. We are told by the world that the more you get noticed, the more value you have. And it's easy to buy into the world's value system and to think that being noticed, being liked, being respected by others is, in fact, success. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher reminds us in chapter 4, verse 4, all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. What he's saying is, A lot of sweat and a lot of toil in this world is actually driven by this pursuit of man and men and women for significance and value. In that case, envy becomes the fuel for action and work. But we need to pause and ask an important question. Is the world's applause the path to true joy. And by joy, I don't mean this cheap, counterfeit fake of a pasted-on smile. I mean biblical joy, a, a deep contentment, no matter the circumstances. The ability, the ability to say, I'm satisfied, no matter what situation we find ourselves in. Is the world's applause the path to true joy? Or or what if all this toil and sweat for recognition is actually nothing but striving after the wind? You catch it, you look what you got, you got nothing. How can we know? Friends, how can we know if we are on the path to true joy? That's the question that John answers today for us in John chapter 3. It's a question we want to look at, 
and to see how John answers in his word, in God's word this morning. And the answer we're going to find in John 3 is actually the opposite of what the world says is the path to true joy. So if you are taking notes this morning, point number one is this. Put the spotlight on Jesus, not yourself. Put the spotlight on Jesus, not yourself. If you're, if you're asking the question, how can we know if we're on the path of true joy, point number one, put the spotlight on Jesus, not yourself. And that's verses 22 through 30 of our text. So let's look at God's word together, starting in verse 22. John, the, the apostle, writes, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person, cannot receive any, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So last week we looked at the first 21 verses, chapter 3, and we, we had a chance to listen in to Jesus' conversation with a, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. But now, and starting in verse 22, the camera has faded from Nicodemus and Jesus, and now the lights come on on a new scene, a new conversation with John the Baptist and his disciples. And just as a reminder, when we're looking, when you hear John in the name John in John's gospel, every time John is mentioned, um, he's referring to John the Baptist. John the apostle who's writing this gospel never mentions his name. So whenever you see John, it's, he's, he's usually referring to John the Baptist. That's who he has in, in mind here. We met John the Baptist already back in chapter 1. And, and part of what we see here in the gospel of John is that until King Herod puts John in prison which he notes in verse 24, there was actually a brief overlap of Jesus' ministry with John the Baptist's ministry. John was already clear in chapter 1. His job was to point people to Jesus. He was, he was preparing people for Jesus, the Messiah. But now, as we see here with, with Jesus' ministry overlapping with John's ministry, Jesus ministering in the Judean countryside, John ministering further north in Anon of near Salim, it was easy for people to compare Jesus and John the Baptist as if it was a competition. Who's got the better ministry? Who's, who's a better teacher? Who's a better leader? Who's, who's a better rabbi? Verse 25 says, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. We're not, who, we're not sure who the Jew is. We're not even sure exactly what the issue over purification was. But there was a discussion. Now, when two kids are caught screaming at each other by their parents, they may try to get out of it by claiming that it wasn't an argument. It was just a lively discussion, right? Discussion in verse 25, actually can be translated as argument. So I actually think that's, that might even be a better picture of what's going on here. The argument uh, between the Jew and, G, and John the Baptist's disciples began uh, on doctrinal grounds. It was an issue over Old Testament purification. But some arguments that begin under the guise of a noble issue, you know, I'm fighting for truth, or I'm, I'm concerned about this doctrine or that doctrine, some of those arguments are actually motivated not by the guise of, of truth. It's actually motivated by pettiness and pride. That's what we see here in verse 25. The issue 
or argument over purification is more of a smokescreen for the real issue of envy. Look at verse 26. They came to John, John the Baptist, and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. So if, if John, the point is, is, if John the Baptist, if he loses popularity, if his market value in the eyes of others declines, well then being a disciple of John, being a follower of John the Baptist, well then you lose value too. So you can hear the panicked tone in John the Baptist's disciple's voice. John! All are going to him! They're freaking out. And what's interesting, they can't even bring themselves to name Jesus. It's the guy that you bore witness to. And I think in telling John, they assume that John the Baptist is going to share their concern. And they're going to immediately begin brainstorming on a new marketing plan so that they can get noticed and they can gain more followers and Jesus won't kind of upstage them. But what's interesting is John does not share their panic quite the opposite. Instead, he, he turns his panicked disciples away from the world's value system and he redirects them to the path of true joy. Look at verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You'll note there when he says it's given from heaven, that's just a short, shorthand way of saying that it's given from God. John's point is simple. There is no competition between him and Jesus. They're not even comparable because everything that John the Baptist has has been given to him by God. There's no competition. Everything he has has been given him. And, and notice that in verse 27, John, uh, the apostle who's writing this, is absolute in his language. You can search through all your achievements. You can look through all your trophies. You can look at all your triumphs. And every time you're going to bump into this unavoidable truth, there's not even one thing that you can say, that's all me. Did it myself. Nothing. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, to the Corinthian church. What do you have? Church, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That's the idea in verse 27. Then John the Baptist goes on and he reminds his disciples that in verse 28, he's not the Christ. He made that very clear from the beginning. He came to point people to Jesus. That's his job description. John's not upset that people are leaving him to go to Jesus because that's why he came. That's exactly what he wants. If you could look at John the Baptist's job description, you might see verse 30. He must increase, I must decrease. That's my job description. So to help his disciples understand what he's saying, the Baptist then goes on to use an illustration of a wedding in verse 29. Look at verse 29. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the groom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. So in this illustration, John the Baptist sees Jesus as the groom, and he sees himself as the friend of the groom. Or in today's language, we might say that John the Baptist was the best man. And the, the job of the best man is simple. It's to make sure that the wedding happens without a hitch. That, that the day of the wedding is actually a day of celebration rather than a day of distractions or mourning or, or, or sorrow. So to help grasp what John is saying in that illustration, I want us to stop and imagine ourselves together at a wedding. 
The bride, the groom, have spent months preparing for marriage. They've completed weeks of premarital counseling with the pastor. They've finished all the logistics and the preparations. Finally, the big day arrives. The guests are seated. The the groom stands up front with his tuxedo on. The best man standing beside him. And the music starts. The bride walks in, decked out in her wedding gown. The, The congregation stands in respect. All eyes then turn to the bride and the groom standing up front. But what if the best man, standing there beside the groom, in a moment of envy, didn't like being upstaged by the bride and the groom? He grabs the microphone from the pastor, and he just starts talking about himself, interrupting the wedding. You know, do you guys like my tux? I look pretty good, don't I? Wait till you see me tonight dancing at the, at the reception. You're going to be impressed. It's amazing. You're going to love it. And he goes on and on and on and on and on about himself so that people see him, so the spotlight's on him. You know, the idea of the best man trying to outstage the bride and groom, that type of a stunt at a wedding is so outlandish, we almost think it's silly, right? But that's the point. To his disciples' shame, John the Baptist is saying, that's what you're doing. That's what you're asking me to do. And John the Baptist kind of rebukes them in this illustration, saying, no, 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 you've got to understand this. This whole thing is not about me. He must increase. I must decrease. This is not about me. It's about Jesus. The reason I'm not bothered by losing the spotlight is because I want the spotlight on him. That's where it belongs. Notice what he says at the end of verse 29. The friend of the, bride, the, friend of the groom who stands and hears him, that's the best man, he rejoices, far from being bothered by it, he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, what? This joy of mine is now complete. It's full. That's the point here, guys. True joy, a a contentment that lasts, a satisfaction despite whatever circumstances we're in, True joy comes not in getting noticed and the praise of this world. It comes by putting the spotlight on Jesus where it belongs. So we get that from the text. We get that as as we watch this interaction between John the Baptist and his disciples. But what does that actually look like for us? What does putting the spotlight on Jesus entail for us? How do we apply that now? Well, one way we apply this idea is by embracing God's providence. Part of being able to do what John the Baptist is doing here, the freedom that he enjoys, is by us embracing God's providence. God's providence reminds us that nothing in this world happens outside of his say-so. God's providence is his sovereignty, his being in control, put in action for his glory and for our good. The point is is that humanity is not a passenger in a bus barreling down a mountain with no driver in it, except for probability and chance. Sometimes it feels that way. This This last year might have felt that way, but it's not true. No, the Bible reminds us over and over, God is sovereign. God is in control. And this is what John the Baptist understands, and this is what he's talking about in verse 27. Look again at verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He's recognizing the providence. He's embracing the providence of God. Friends, that's why we don't boast about blessings. When we are blessed, we give thanks to God. We, 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 we humbly recognize where it came from, and we give thanks to God who provides, who protects, who heals, and who guides. But God's providence is also why we don't despair in tragedy. 
That's not to say that we understand that everything that's going on. No, we don't. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are some things that we don't understand or see that God sees. But God's providence reminds us that no trial is wasted because God is in control. Because he's sovereign, he is able to work all things together for the good of those who love him. He's able to work all things together for his glory, including tragic things. Including years like 2020. Embracing God's providence, though, can be difficult. Especially when we don't like the circumstances that God's providence puts us in. Whether you're 8 years old or whether you're 80 years old, there are times when we see somebody who is more beautiful, more successful, more popular, more wealthy. And it just seems like when you look at their life, life just seems to go easy for them. And we begin to compare ourselves with that person. And soon envy sets in our hearts. And envy makes the bones rot. Proverbs 14, verse 30 says. Makes you feel ill, miserable. But embracing God's providence is one of the things that helps us find freedom to be comfortable in our own skin, in our own situation, in in the circumstances and the lot that God has put us in. I think this is one of the tragedies of the recent transgender movement. It, It encourages someone who's struggling with gender dysphoria to actually devalue or to be discontent with the gender that God has assigned. Friends, God doesn't make mistakes. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. He made us in his image, male and female. And making gender, that makes gender one of God's good gifts. So for those who are struggling with gender dysphoria, joy and contentment is not found in changing one's gender. It's actually found in embracing God's providence, even when that's hard. And so as Christians, we, we need the courage to say this, even when that's unpopular. And we need the compassion to walk alongside those, even in the church, who are struggling with gender dysphoria. And we also need the humility that comes from admitting that we too, even if we don't struggle with that, we too at times struggle to accept or to rejoice or to embrace in God's providence in our life. Whether it's looking in the mirror with disgust or whether it's disliking where we're at in life, we at times struggle to embrace God's providence in our life. So whether you're gifted or mediocre, whether you're single or you're married, whether you're uh, parenting or you're childless, whether you're successful or struggling to make ends meet, whether you're healthy or unwell, friends, whatever your lot, we as followers of Christ should avoid boasting And we should avoid despair. We should put to death the temptation to grumble and to complain. Instead of kicking against God's providence, we should embrace God's providence. Because what he does is right. And what he does is good. Now, that's not to say that we should not change our circumstances. If we can, if we can lawfully change our circumstances, we should. It's it's fine. But while we wait for those circumstances to change, what this is saying is that we should trust God. We should wait upon God. We should trust him. Also, embracing God's providence is not an encouragement to mediocrity. Don't mishear that. Quite the opposite. In whatever we do, the Christian is called to do it for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you you do, whatever you eat or drink, do it for the glory of God. So the Christian should labor to be the best musician, the best student, the best engineer, the best parent, the best doctor or plumber they can be. But embracing God's providence 
That does not squash ambition. What it does is it redirects our ambition to put the spotlight where it belongs, not on ourselves, but on Jesus. Friends, we need to ask ourselves, and this might be a good thing to do this afternoon, ask yourself, who do you identify most most with in our text this morning? John the Baptist? who embraces his role and God's providence or John's disciples who chafe under God's providence in their lust for applause? What motivates you more? A desire to be respected and liked and needed and noticed by others or a desire to make much of God? The catechism reminds us that our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Friends, that's why you and I were put on this earth. That's why we exist, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Therefore, true joy is found in putting the spotlight on Jesus, not yourself. Now, that's easy to say. It's easy to even recite the catechism and say amen to that. It's easy to say that, but we also need to pause here and be honest that that is a very, very, very hard thing to do. Just think about Nicodemus that we we, we saw last week in chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3. Nicodemus was a respected Pharisee. He, He was the teacher of Israel. He was a ruler of the Jews, I mean, he was at the top of his game, right? Trusting Jesus for true joy, putting the spotlight on him, would mean putting everything that he had achieved at risk. It would mean taking his resume that, that, that was enviable and ripping it up and considering it garbage in comparison with the value of knowing Jesus. When your resume is looking good, that's hard to do. So how does our heart attain the freedom that John the Baptist came to know? That that, that he could see people leaving his group, his following, and go to Jesus, and he's like, good. He must increase, I must decrease. What was it that allowed John the Baptist's heart to get there? How do our hearts get there? Point number two. Here's how. Point number two. Rest in God's love by receiving Jesus' testimony. Rest in God's love by receiving Jesus' testimony. And we're going to see the second point in verses 31 through 36 of our text. Look with me at verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from a heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, and he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Friends, if you're not if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, so glad you're here. I wonder where do you where do you look for truth? What what do you rely on for life's big questions? Where do you go for answers? Questions like Where we come from? Why are we here? How do we know what's right and wrong? Or what happens when we die? To be alive is, 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 we all all have to answer those questions, whether we know it or not. So what do you rely on for truth to answer those questions? Well, the 
if you've, if you've interacted with a Christian at all, the, the Christian's claim to know truth absolutely, that may sound arrogant. But I actually want to argue that, that, that the Christian's claim to know the truth is actually an expression of humility. The reality is, is that there's a lot that you and I, left to ourselves, don't know, right? Even if we could read all the books and all the libraries and all the world, which we can't, on topics like science and math and philosophy and medicine and law, we could read all those books and understand them perfectly, there would still be loads that we don't know about ourselves, about this world, let alone the universe that, that, that we live in. And so a little bit of reflection, we have to rec- if we're honest with ourselves, we have to recognize that our brief life, our limited existence, means that we are very limited in what we actually know. And so looking within is not the answer. That's not, the, that's not a reliable source of, of truth. So the Christian's confidence about knowing the truth is not, is not a claim of them being intelligent. It's not us saying, well, we're really smart, that's why we have a corner on the truth. No, the Christian's claim for confidence is based on external revelation. We're confident about the truth because we believe that God has revealed to the world what is true. Therefore, that's an expression of humility. God who isn't limited like us, God who sees all and knows all because he created all, God has spoken and he has put his word into what we hold as the Bible. That's John's point to us in verse 31. John the Baptist, you, me, and everyone else on this earth is of the earth. In other words, we speak in an earthly way. That's John's way of saying that you and I are limited. We're finite. But, in verse 31, Jesus is he who comes from above. He comes from above. He he comes from heaven. So when, when Jesus speaks, when he declares what's true, he, unlike us, is not guessing. He's not speculating. Verse 32 says, he, Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard. He, Jesus, speaks as a reliable authority on what's true because he's above all. In other words, he's the son of God. He is God in the flesh. He knows all and he reveals certain things to us. That's that's been John's point since the very beginning of the gospel in the prologue. Chapter 1, verse 14 says, The word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? To make the Father known. And those truths are then recorded in the pages of Scripture. Well, how do Christians know that the Bible is reliable? That's a good question. I, I could talk to you about, uh, about the manuscript evidence as a, as a reason for the reliability of Scriptures. I could talk to you about the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the foundation for our confidence that it's true. I could talk about many other anecdotal lines of evidence that show the reliability of of God's word being a source of truth. But friends, the best argument I can make for you that the Bible itself is reliable, the best argument I can make is for you to read it yourself. Start with the Gospel of John. Read it from chapter 1 to chapter 21. And read it with an open mind. And see for yourself that it is true. One of the best arguments for the truthfulness of Scripture is its self-attesting nature, that it is the Word of God. And I've said this before, but if you take me up on this challenge and you have questions along the way as you read through the Gospel of John, listen, I am just, if you have questions along the way, talk to me, call the church office. We would count it an honor to walk alongside you as you make your way through God's Word and do our best to answer any of the questions you have in the Gospel of John. But read it yourself. Verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. 
I like this idea that John uses of setting the seal. It's, it comes from the practice of signing a document in, in, uh, in, 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 in ancient days. You would actually sign the document by taking your signet ring and impressing it on hot wax. And then you, you're, you're bearing your seal as if to certify that this is true. Jesus came from above to reveal what he had seen and heard as the Son of God to reveal the truth about God and ourselves to us. And verse 34 explains that Jesus is no ordinary prophet. He has received the Spirit without measure. He is God. And so when he speaks, listen, when you hear Jesus speaking in the pages of Scripture, you're hearing a man who utters the very words of God. That's what verse 34 is saying. So to receive his testimony means more than just picking up a Bible at the, at, the, at the local bookstore. It means to receive his testimony means to certify, to, to take our signet ring and to certify and say, this is truth. I am owning this as truth. I am banking my life on this being true. And then living like it. But as you sit here now and listen to the testimony of Jesus, you, also, you and I also have to realize that the opposite, uh, the opposite is also true, which means that we are accountable for what we're hearing right now. If you read the Bible and you think, eh, I don't really buy it. John is saying in verse 34 that you are calling God a liar. You can't just read the Bible and be like, eh, and think that you're on neutral ground. To reject God's testimony through Jesus, to not buy it, is to call God a liar. So when Jesus talked to Nicodemus at the beginning of chapter 3, and Jesus told him that you do not receive my testimony, verse 11, that he did not believe his testimony, verse 12, that meant that at that point, at this point in John, Nicodemus a religious leader who knows the Old Testament is calling God a liar. That's serious business. The Son of God was right in front of Nicodemus, and he didn't receive Jesus because he did not want to risk the things that made him important, noteworthy in the eyes of the world. Nicodemus was blinded by the sin of pride. Friends, a performance-based value system by which our world operates actually cultivates the pride that we see in Nicodemus. A performance-based value system says that if you're, it says that you're somebody, you have value, you have worth, you have, you have significance if people notice you. The currency of this value system is how many followers you have, how many people like you, how many people notice you, respect you. The problem is, is that it makes us so preoccupied with ourselves and trying to garner the praise of man that we don't see God. Our pride blinds us. This is what C.S. Lewis warned in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, with God... You come up against something which in every respect is immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not yet know God. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and down on people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Friends, apart from God, it is human nature to wake up in the morning seeking to justify ourselves, to justify our existence, to justify our value. 
And what we're going to see, this is kind of the beginning of this theme introduced in John. But John's gospel is going to come back to this theme over and over. That the idea of when we seek the praise of man, our pursuit of the praise of man will blind us from seeing God. Our pursuit of the praise of man will prevent us from believing. John 5, is going to say, how can you receive the praise of God? How can you praise, how can you believe if you're seeking the praise of man and you're not seeking the praise of God? You can't believe if you're seeking the praise of man because you're looking down, you're looking inward, you're not looking up. And so we need to follow this theme through John and we need to put our pride to death. Friends, an impressive resume, one like Nicodemus had that, that caused people to envy him, is dangerous. When we live by a performance-based value system, we are enslaved by a performance-based value system. Because if our value, if who you are, your identity, survives on the praise of man, then giving up your resume, giving up the praise of man and putting the spotlight on Jesus, that, that call, that command can feel like somebody's asking you to die. To give up who you are. We see it in the star athlete who can't let go of the game even after they're long retired. We see it in our defensiveness when somebody critiques us. We see it in our lack of sleep and anxiety over what people think about us. Friends, but in his invitation to follow him, Jesus commands us to come and die. There's no other way. Luke, Luke 9, 23 and 24, then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. That's the call to die and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. The call to follow Jesus is the call to die that you may truly live. takes faith to do that, doesn't it? Hearing Jesus command us to follow him, to take up our cross and follow him, that can feel overwhelming. It might even feel impossible. So how can our hearts get there? John the Baptist was there. He, 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 we see him living in the freedom of not caring what other people think about him. So how can our hearts get there? This feels impossible. Look at verse 35. We see a hint at how we get there in verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Notice you see the Trinity all over John 3. The Father gave the, son, the Spirit to the Son without measure. Here we see the Father, God the Father, loving God the Son. All three persons of the Trinity present in John 3. John's highlight here, he's highlighting that God, God, God the Father loves the Son. And, 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 and he loves him with a perfect love. But what's interesting is if you, if you skip ahead to the end of, of John, John 17, verse 23, Jesus is going to pray for the unity in the church. Why? So that, this is John 17, 23, the world may know that you sent me and loved them, the church, even as you love me. That's remarkable. Jesus prays that the world would know by our unity that God the Father loves us like he loves his son, Jesus Christ. That's remarkable. <laughs> the Father's love for his son is perfect. It is unending. It is abundant. It is satisfying. To enter into the, the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is to enter into paradise. It is to enter into heaven. So to hear that God the Father loves his son that way, sure, we get that. Jesus, of course God loves him that way. He's the sinless son of God. But loving rebellious sinners like you and me, the way he loves Jesus, come on. Come on. The cynical side in us says, no, 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 no. No way. That's scandalous. What's the catch? There's got to be a catch. Friends, there's no catch. It's the true scandal of God's amazing grace. 
that God would love you and I, that God the Father would love you and I the same way he loves his son. Friends, when our value is based on performance and comparison, that means every day we wake up, we enter into a desperate attempt to prove ourselves. Got to prove myself, got to get noticed, got to make sure people think well of me. I got to justify myself, I got to be somebody, because none of us want to be nobody. And so we, we go through our day at work, in school, as parents, and friendships, even in religion, trying to be noticed, trying to justify our existence. Each day feels like we're on trial, right? And some days we're winning the case, proving our or justifying our existence before the courtroom of the world. Other days we fall on our face and we feel like we're losing. And that roller coaster of feeling one way and, you know, good one day in our achievements and failing the next is exhausting. John the Baptist seems to have stepped out of that trial so that he doesn't care what the world thinks about him. And we realize from this text that the way out of the trial begins with, first of all, accepting that no matter how hard we try, we will never by our accomplishments and our efforts, we will never be able to justify ourselves before a holy God. you got to start there. Trying to be good enough is a, it is futile. It ain't going to happen. The way out of waking up every day feeling like we're on trial before the world is by seeing that Jesus went on trial for us in our place. We get out of the trial, court can be adjourned by believing and understanding that Jesus went on trial before us. Second Corinthians 5:21 says this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, the reason that we as followers of Jesus don't have to perform, we don't have to justify ourselves is because we're trusting in Christ. And in trusting in Christ, we realize that God has already justified us. He's already declared us innocent. By, by grace and grace alone, Christ takes our sin. He gives us his perfect righteousness, and he takes us in as sons and daughters of God. He gives us a seat at the wedding feast. We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to clamor to be noticed by the world because in Christ we are already accepted. We are already fully loved by the one whose opinion ultimately matters. We are loved by God because of Jesus. We are loved by God as if he's loving his own son, Jesus. How do we get there? How do we come to receive this love? How do we get this reconciliation? By believing. By believing. By trusting, not ourselves, but Christ alone. Look at verse 36. This is what he says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him worth noting that belief is put in parallel to obedience. The idea of belief in Scripture is more than just mental assent. Yeah, I agree, that's true. It, it's, it's believing that actually acts upon that as if it's true. Those who don't believe, those who don't obey, God's wrath remains on him, the text says. It's a difficult doctrine. But in his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer helpfully writes, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally shameful thing that human anger so often is. When you see God's wrath, don't think of the wrath of an angry person. God's wrath is perfect. It is, he goes on to say, a right, God's wrath is a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. Friends, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I pray that you hear what John's saying this morning, that to not respond to Christ means that right now, God's wrath remains 
on you. His anger, his displeasure with your rebellion and your sin remains on you. That should alarm us. And I pray you also hear the good news of this text, that it doesn't have to stay that way. God is not reluctant to save. We saw last week in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's not that God's reluctant, it's that we're reluctant. And so I pray that in seeing Jesus in the pages of Scripture that we turn from our sin. Friends, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, turn from your sin. Turn from your self-reliance and look to Christ and trust in him alone. If you do, the promise of Scripture is that the wrath of God will not remain on you. You will be forgiven. You will receive eternal life through Christ. Church, the, the more... The more we, as followers of Jesus, care about honoring God, the less we will care about receiving honors from men. In the kingdom of God, the one who would be great must be the least of all. The one who desires the praise of God must not care about the praise of man. As a Christian, there needs to come a point when we agree with that and we want that and we believe that. But as Christians, we might find ourselves at times sucked sucked back into the courtroom, trying to earn and prove ourselves, trying to earn the praise of the world, trying to justify our existence. And instead of rejoicing greatly at the bridegroom's voice like John the Baptist does in verse 29, we fall back into clamoring for the people's voice like John's disciples. Friends, this is why we need each other. This is why we gather each week. This is that, that, that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through the encouragement of his word, through us spurring each other on to, to love and to good deeds, we actually remember, oh, wait, 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 I don't need to justify myself. I don't need the, the praise of man. The court is adjourned. I'm already justified. In Christ we are fully loved. We are accepted. We believe that, and then we live like it. Amen? Let's pray together.